0: bandwidth for changelog is provided by fastly learn more at fastly.com we move fast and fix things here at changelog because of rollbar check them out at rollbar.com and we're hosted on linode servers head to linode.com changelog
1: this episode of the changelog is brought to you by hired One thing people hate doing is searching for a new job. It's so painful to search through open positions on every job board under the sun. The process to find a new job is such a mess. If only there was an easier way. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is. Our friends at Hired have made it so companies send you offers with salary, benefits, and even equity up front. All you have to do is answer a few questions to showcase who you are and what type of job you're looking for. They work with more than 6,000 companies from startups to large, publicly traded companies in 14 major tech hubs in North America and Europe. You get to see all of your interview requests. You can accept, reject, or make changes to their offer even before you talk with anyone. And here's the kicker. It's totally free. This isn't going to cost you a thing. It's not like you have to go there and spend money to get this opportunity. And if you get a job through Hire, they're even going to give you a bonus. It's normally $300, but since you're a listener of the change log, they're going to give you six hundred dollars instead even if you're not looking for a job you can refer a friend and hired will send you a check for a thousand three hundred and thirty seven dollars when they accept the job as you can see hired makes it way too easy get started at hired.com changelog Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Change Log. Jared goes solo on this one to talk with Richard Feldman. They chat about the growing Elm community, some pretty cool asset optimization features built into Elm 0.19, Noradink's first production runtime error, and the biggest blockers to folks adopting Elm.
2: So richard it's been almost well just past two years since we first had you and evan on the show to tell us about elm and now we're here to catch up hear what's new and uh learn some more so first of all welcome back
3: yeah great to be back
2: so two years is a long time in internet years i'm assuming elm has leaped forward uh it's still out there it's still popular people still talk about it i still see people retweeting uh things that you're saying about elm so Before we get into the catch up, why don't you give the elevator pitch what Elm is and what you use it for.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, So Elm is a programming language for building web apps. Uh, It compiles to JavaScript. Um, People often consider it sort of an alternative to JavaScript frameworks because in addition to being a programming language, it also comes with enough tools out the box to build an entire web app. Um, So we don't really have frameworks in Elm. It's sort of like the language provides enough that you don't need a framework. And so I work at No Red Ink. Um, We make tools for English teachers and basically uh, our entire front end, just about, I guess we have some legacy React stuff from back in the day, but um, pretty much everything is in Elm and it's about 250,000 lines of code. Uh, our first commit was in 2015. So it's been somewhere between three and four years um, that we've been doing it in production. Basically, everybody who works on the front end writes Elm full time. It's been really great. Um, some of the stuff that's cool about Elm is uh, one, it's it's really really reliable and easy to maintain. Um, it has a really amazing, like friendly, helpful compiler um, with really nice error messages that kind of tell you about problems before they happen to end users. And um, as a consequence of that, I used to be able to say that we'd had zero runtime exceptions in the that's entire right. time we'd had Elm deployed. However, unfortunately, Uh-oh. last year. It happened. We finally, no. yeah. So now I have this graph that I like to show, which is like because we we have a logging system that tells us if anything crashes, and so now the chart is like sixty thousand JavaScript runtime exceptions, like from our JS code, and uh-huh. then like it's it's not zero, but it's zero pixels on the graph because it's a blip. right. Uh, so it, it is possible. It can it can technically happen. What um, happened? Well, it's it's actually a, a funny segue into Elm 0.19. It's a thing that is no longer possible in Elm 19. So that was okay. <laughs> the root cause there. Basically there was a function called debug.crash and it really did what it says on the tin. if you call it. Sounds it, it like you shouldn't call
2: that in production. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, it's funny you should mention that. <laughs> Cuz yeah, you you shouldn't call that in production. Um, but we did and uh, sure enough it got run and then it crashed. Um, so in Elm 19, there's actually, uh, when, when you run an optimized build, there's a new compiler flag called dash dash optimize, which I'm sure we will get into because that's one of the sort of banner yeah. features of the release. Um, when you run that, one of the things that it does is it's, it, it says, hey, uh, you're still using some debug functions. Um, take those out before building for production. So that would uh, would have prevented us from <laughs> having any runtime exceptions. But unfortunately, that option didn't exist back then. So. Mm. We, we blemished our, our previously unblemished record. But yeah, it happens. You know, it's funny because when I, when I like, you know, we, we found out about it and I, I tweeted about it, um, that got like way more retweets and, and likes than, than my previous comments that, hey, it's still been, you know, this many months or this many years without any runtime exceptions. And I have this theory that maybe it's more credible if you say it's been, like, you know, right. a very small number instead of zero. <laughs> because that's right i guess people kind of wonder well maybe you just don't have your logging set up right um but we did well it's like even <laughs>
2: superman has his kryptonite you know like right. zero is just it's almost unbelievable because yeah it's it's statistically like i mean but then you're still in a blip but you know right, it shows right. it shows that you know even even element no Red ink are humans as well you oh know, absolutely it, they're not perfect <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, we we very much are not.
2: <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the company. So, I I mention No Red Ink often because there are a handful of businesses who have done what you all have done in hiring Evan and allowing him to work on Elm. And I like to just promote that activity. Um, another one that comes to mind is Shopify, uh, which hires Sean Griffin to work full time on Rails. And I think they're hiring other such positions like um, to fill out even more of their infrastructure team, dockyard hired Chris McCord to work on Phoenix. And it's like, his job is to work on Phoenix. And that's something that they believe in investing in. So, uh, just curious from the business end and from your perspective, like what it's been like having Evan working there, um, the push and the pull, like has he been able to dedicate most of his time on Elm proper or does he get pulled into the business things? Help us understand uh, how that's going.
3: So it's in Evan's contract that he only works on Elm. Uh, he's never so we hired him in January 2016, um, and he's never re- done anything like directly for the product. Um, so the wow. product is is basically it's a web application for for teachers to help teach their students English, um, and more specifically writing. Um, and uh, Evan basically is is really just a hundred percent open source engineer. He just works on Elm um and my my boss uh, i full credit to him it was his idea um to 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 see if we could hire evan um basically what he said was you know to evan hey the reason we want to hire you is that elm's been really great for us and we don't want to mess with the formula we want you to keep doing what you're doing we just want to be kind of more plugged into it um so yeah i mean uh, he he basically has you know, complete autonomy to take Elm in whatever direction he thinks is best. And we trust his judgment because that's what's led us to embrace it in the first place. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess it's, we're aware that that's not a common thing for a company our size. So, for context, we have, I think it's 26 engineers now. Um, mm-hmm. This is probably a good time to mention that we're hiring. So, if you want to come work with me and Evan uh, <laughs> well, there you on, go. on building stuff for teachers, um, we're super remote friendly. Uh, I work remotely from Philadelphia. Evan works from Boston. Um, the headquarters are in San Francisco, but we, we go anywhere from West coast Pacific to central European time as far as time zones go. Um, so the 26 engineers are, are pretty widely distributed across that. Um, and and the overall company is, I think it's 67. I want to say something like that, like between Uh 65, 70 people. Um, and, uh, yeah. So for a company our size to hire somebody to 100% work on open source stuff, I, I guess it's pretty unusual. Um, but like I said, we really wanted to sort of keep the good thing going and to, you know, not mess with the formula that has brought us so many technical benefits.
2: Yeah. Elm has been much uh, praised for its technical benefits. I'm curious about the community. So it's been two years since we've talked and we like to you know keep our thumb on the pulse of like, you know, which direction things are moving. And anytime you have a project or a piece of software which uh has technical prowess you always wonder will it catch on will it have a a robust community will there be people who adopt it and so like i said we're we're here two years later and it's still going but curious from your perspective uh, how much adoption elm has gained and how much the community has really built out around evan and around your work
3: yeah that's a great question um so first of all i think uh The biggest change that we've seen in the past year, um, so we started doing this state of Elm survey. And so comparing 2017 to 2018, um, the biggest change that we saw was actually more people using Elm on teams, like at work, rather than as individuals, as hobbyists. Hmm. Um, So in 2017, it was something like 18% of survey respondents said that they were using Elm at work. And 2018, it was like 40%. So more than double. Um, which was really fantastic because one of the you know concerns with a, a project like Elm is it's like, hey, this is a new programming language. Obviously that's a bigger you know, barrier to a lot of teams trying to adopt it than it is to say we're a library or we're a framework. Um, and so there was always that kind of question where it's like, hey, even if this is really great, even if it has all these benefits, is that going to be something that teams are just unwilling to, to give a, a real shot to? Um, and it turns out that the, the answer seems to be, actually, they are willing to give it a shot. And that's, that's really changing. Um, so as far as absolute growth numbers, uh, we don't really have a great way to measure that, In part because um, around the time of GDPR, we were like, you know, we could do a bunch of stuff to make the website compliant with cookies and whatnot, or we could just stop tracking visits and we just decided to stop tracking visits. So we don't really have even like a bellwether of <laughs> how well, many you could people just,
2: You could have just blocked all of Europe. We've seen a oh, few no, companies no. doing that as well.
3: <laughs> no, I mean, Elm's <laughs> Elm's really big in Europe. The biggest Elm meetup I ever went to was in London. It was like a hundred people. And, uh, Oslo nice. apparently is just like a hotbed of Elm activity, Oslo, Norway. Um, there's just like a bunch of, there, there are multiple Elm consulting companies, um, There's a bunch of companies using Elm, you know, to build their products. Uh, So I think the idea of just like, ah, we'll just ignore Europe, it would be a complete (laughs) non-starter for us. Yeah. It's interesting
2: you find so much growth of Elm inside of enterprise and inside of the workplace. seems like small new niche languages start off at least, uh, many of them I'm thinking of in the hobbyist realm, you know, you think people tinkering trying it out on their own time and then maybe it starts to get penetration as they see value or as they sneak it into their organizations often what do you think is the the, the selling point for elm that's getting so many businesses to hop on is it that is it that example the the one runtime error i was gonna say the zero runtime errors <laughs> the, the very few runtime errors is that is that what gets people to really dive in and try it on you know on work time
3: so that's that's a great question um I want to go back a step, though, and like, just point out that I think, you know, Elm, like, we, we've we gotten, like, definitely increasing adoption over time, but I can't say Elm's, like, a runaway smash success. It's not, like, on the level of, like, a React or an Angular, you know, uh-huh. something like that, that um, I think Elm is, like, I, I like to say we've graduated from obscure to niche um, where it's, it's something that, nice. you know, like, uh, a good number of people have heard of, but a much smaller number of people have actually tried, um, and an even smaller number of people are actually using it professionally. So, um, I think like, we, you know, that's been a, a really positive improvement, but I can't say that we're there yet. Like Evan gave this talk a couple years ago called let's be mainstream. I don't think I can say that, um, Elm is mainstream yet in yeah. terms of adoption. Having said that, Evan also gave a pretty awesome talk about sort of like, what are Elm's goals? Like, what does success look like? And one of the things he talked about is actually, getting back to your point about community, the conclusion (laughs) of the talk was basically, let's try to make a really great community where everybody wants to help each other build awesome things. And not worry so much about adoption or, you know, hacker news or stars on GitHub and just kind of let those things fall out of having a really happy, successful functioning community where people are happy. Um, so that's been kind of the, the bigger focus, um, for like, there are definitely some things we could do that could, you know, sacrifice Elm's long-term goals, um, for the sake of like driving adoption in the short term. And we just kind of said, no, nah, we don't want to do that. Um, we'd rather just let it grow organically at whatever pace that is, um, mm-hmm. and so far, you know, we've all been pretty happy with that outcome. Uh, I, I have to say <laughs> it does benefit companies who do adopt Elm for now, because the result of that strategy has been uh, intentionally or not, which I don't think it has been intentional since we haven't really talked about it on the core team. Um, but, uh, it does mean that there's actually a pretty substantial hiring benefit to companies that adopt it. Um, so we have seen this and other companies have seen this, that basically there's just More Elm developers out there, like people who want to use Elm at work, than there are companies who have Elm positions, which means that Mm. it's actually paradoxically easier to hire high-quality Elm developers right now than it is to hire high-quality JavaScript developers, because although there are many more JavaScript developers in the world than there are Elm developers, there is an even bigger proportion of JavaScript job openings that they are out there choosing from. Um, so it's sort of like you, you get to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond by being one of the few companies that's uh, offering Elm jobs. And that's been one of the biggest benefits to us outside the technical realm um, has just been hiring. We like Honestly, the number one thing that we get on our cover letters for like why the person applied, like they all say the word Elm. Like it's a selling point for basically everybody who who applies for any kind of front end or full stack position, Um, to the point where we've actually transitioned. Like when I joined the company, which was almost five years ago now, um, we had a really tough time hiring front end engineers. Uh, We we were able to get back end and some full stack applicants, but front end was just the well was totally dry until we started using Elm. And now it's completely reversed where we now have a much harder time finding backend people than frontend people because we just get so many applicants who are interested in using Elm. We even get some backend people who are interested in using Elm. They're like, hey, you know, I'm a backend engineer, but I'm actually kind of curious about this Elm thing. And that's what got me interested in your job position in the first place. I'd like to kind of do a little bit of Elm stuff, even if I'm mainly on the backend. It's pretty cool.
2: That's interesting. It makes me think of uh, kind of on a different angle of the same idea. Not only is it easier to hire because there's less enterprises that are hiring in Elm, but there's also somewhat of a relationship between a programmer who will uh, learn a new thing on their own and who's like diving into these niches because they see the technical merits of a language and the quality of that programmer. So it reminds me of um, actually a Paul Graham essay from all the way back in 2004. Have you heard of this one, The Python Paradox? Python Paradox,
3: yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I mean,
2: you got to put yourself in the time of two thousand four. But his point was that uh, Python programmers, well, let me. I just have it pulled up here. Let me read it a little bit. So he says, in a recent talk, I said something that upset a lot of people: that you could get smarter programmers to work on a Python project than you could to work on a Java project. Of course, that would upset a lot of people, right? <laughs> he, said, he said, I didn't mean by this that Java programmers are dumb. I meant that Python programmers are smart. It's a lot of work to learn a new programming language, and people don't learn Python because it will get them a job. They learn it because they genuinely like to program and aren't satisfied with the languages they already know. And so that's that Python paradox that he's talking about. It no longer applies to Python, right? Because that's sure. has gone mainstream. For sure. Yeah. And you can definitely get a good job learning Python, but it does apply, I think, to niche languages and the kind of programmers that will go out there and teach themselves or dedicate hobby time. They're usually pretty good programmers. So, um kind of works both sides
3: yeah i think it definitely correlates with a passion for programming right i mean yeah. like this is something my <laughs> my wife likes to say is uh, you know she she'll point out that your hobby is also your work like when i'm not working on uh, my, right. my stuff my hobby is like doing more programming stuff and like running the philadelphia l meetup and whatnot <laughs> um, right it's so fair yeah and and i think uh you know, that's I think it's important that our industry not have that as a requirement, like that people need to do the same thing in their free time that they do in their work time. But Absolutely. of course, it's, it's inescapable that it's an advantage. I mean, if you're spending more time in, engaging with your craft, then you're just on average going to be better. Uh, otherwise, that would be kind of a waste of time. Um, and I mean, as uh, as much as I don't want that to become a requirement, I also appreciate the fact that companies benefit from that.
2: Yeah, it's 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 fortunate and yet unfortunate, you know. It's one of those things.
3: Yeah, as long um, as it doesn't become a requirement, I think it's okay.
1: This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging, and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com changelog
2: So, richard as you said uh, elm is moving from obscure to niche and uh its impact has been i would say more than niche and more than obscure because uh, we've well documented on this show and one of the things i love about the changelog and why we try to stay as polyglot as we can even though we, that means we dive into things that sometimes we just can't quite swim that deep just sure. because uh the proliferation and the moving of ideas across different camps and different languages and different communities is hugely valuable and i think two years ago when you and evan were on i asked evan about the feeling he gets when uh, some of his great ideas and some of the things that elm has really paved the way for uh, thinking about the elm architecture thinking about the just the niceties of the compiler and these ideas have either been you know borrowed or from the great artists have been stolen and taken to (laughs) other languages other projects other frameworks um really a neat thing that has happened but that being said. Somebody who knows JavaScript today and doesn't know Elm can benefit from a lot of the stuff that Elm brought to the table. But what are still some reasons in 2018 uh, to give it a try, even though a lot of the great ideas have been, you know, moved around to other places?
3: Yeah. So it's it's funny that, that you mentioned that because um, from my perspective, it, I have a uh, I developed sort of a strange relationship with the idea of um, Elm's ideas kind of proliferating in the world. So the uh, the big one is the Elm architecture, which essentially yeah. is I think um Redux is is very similar to the Elm architecture in a lot of ways and uh and that's sort of like the biggest way to do application state management uh in the React ecosystem certainly and even in like Angular and Vue there's sort of like ways you can opt into that which some people do. Um whereas in Elm it's sort of a foundational concept everything's built on top of that it's the only way to manage app state and uh, there's actually no other source of global state at all um and one of the things that's interesting to me is that if i talk to a javascript developer um it's pretty common like who's never used elm it's pretty common that they will say uh yeah like the elm architecture seems really cool and i i appreciate you know some of the, the simplicity that it brings um to organizing your app state and if i talk to elm developers like who have been doing elm for even a couple of months nobody mentions that it's all other stuff. That's just hmm. sort of like the table stakes in Elm. And, and because it's this kind of uh, foundational primitive, I, the the stuff that people talk about are things like, I really love the compiler error messages, or I love how everything in the ecosystem just works well together. Or now with Elm 0.19, two of the things that people commonly mention are, one, my project builds so fast because there was a big speed up in the compiler. Um, uh-huh. Evan basically rewrote all of the, like he wrote rewrote the parser and then he rewrote the exhaustiveness checker and the type checker. And basically by the time he was done, pretty much all of the insights had been rewritten um, for speed. And uh, the result is that Somebody posted um, they had like a 50,000, just shy of 50,000 line of code um, Elm project with uh, something over 100 files and so forth. And the entire thing from scratch, building it plus all of its dependencies, like on a fresh Git checkout, um, was like under two seconds. And that's like compiling it, type checking it. Uh, spitting out the compiled JavaScript, like everything start to finish was under two seconds. And that's not even an incremental compile, which of course are much faster. Um, so that's like, you know, I, I think about like how many people's, you know, Babel, which is JavaScript to JavaScript, uh, builds, you know, a, a, at that scale are running in under two seconds for a fresh build, let alone for an incremental build. And mm. and that sort of, you know, becomes a selling point, um, becomes something that people are excited about. And so, I think about it in in terms of two things um, that are really exciting to me about Elm. One is the tools, so that is like the compiler and and the the tooling around it, like the the package manager. Um, And the other one is the ecosystem, where basically everything is built in terms of Elm and I don't really have to worry about compatibility like I did in the JavaScript world. I, I, I Basically, whenever I install a new package, I kind of expect it to just work immediately. I'll say, install it, and then I expect to get the same experience I would get as if I were just using a new core library that, that shipped with the language, it's sort of that level of smoothness. Um, And, you know, I get, well, so asset size is, I guess, another, uh, (laughs) another thing we should talk about because that's, that's maybe the biggest selling point of Elm 0.19. But it's relatively new. So I don't hear a lot of people talking about it yet.
2: Well, it was news to me. Just, just announced uh, the blog post, which is linked in our show notes uh, August 21st. So we're recording this. October 10th, a couple of months back, but this one didn't make the headlines uh, as much as some of the other things I've seen from the Elm community, even though it's a pretty big deal, especially nowadays where we're trying so hard to get the time to first paint down to as small as possible for our web apps so that they can reach as many people as fast as they can. Uh, Elm 0.19 has made huge strides with regard to bundle size. Give us the details.
3: Yeah, so basically... um the The comparison point that we ended up using was the uh, the real world app. So this is um, basically a project that's sort of designed to be uh, a bigger cousin to, to do MVC. So the basic okay. idea is they have uh, a really detailed specification for here's how to build this. It's like a medium clone. It's it's called Conduit. It's basically you can uh, sign in, sign up. Uh, post an article, view a feed of articles, favorite articles, follow authors, unfollow people, you can edit some settings. So pretty typical web app type stuff. And Mm -hmm. um, they basically have a really detailed spec, and they provide all the styles for you. And they have a spec for both the front end and the back end. So if you want, you can try out, hey, what does it look like if I'm running this application on a React front end and a Django back end, or a Angular front end, or with a Laravel backend, um, and all those different combinations.
2: That's a great idea, by the way. I think I remember saying that. It's very useful to be able to swap those in and out and just see how it, how it reacts, right?
3: Yeah, and it's a really cool project just to be able to compare. Like, if I'm trying to see, hey, how would this thing be done in you know this particular technology? I want to evaluate that technology. Just having a you know, sort of substantial code base to to look at it to say, okay, so I see how this thing maps to that other familiar thing, you know, technology exactly. that I know. Um, so, uh, so we have an Elm implementation of this and one of the things that's kind of cool about this is that these are all projects where the goal is to show best practices, not to like tune to benchmarks, which is always, you know, a a concern with micro benchmarks is that it's like, well, how much of this is like actually real world versus, you know, uh, something that's just been kind of like tuned to do the best numbers on the benchmark possible. And pretty much Mm -hmm. all of these are like, people just built the apps to, to do a good job showing like how to do things right. And, um, so what we saw was basically the, the sort of the punchline of the, uh, the blog post is that, um, the like react Ember and angular ones have anywhere between, I think it's like a hundred and five, something a little bit over a hundred kilobytes, um, of, uh, minified and gzipped assets for this whole application, um, which is usually like i don't know a couple dozen uh files and so you know a bunch of dependencies and and so forth so 100k is and and i think down to like uh, in the 70s depending on which of those more popular frameworks you're using um whereas the elm one the entire compiled asset size minified gzipped is 29k which is actually just smaller than react by itself which was a really cool result because that basically means that if you're doing a react version of this even with the most aggressive possible code splitting, you still couldn't get it down to as small as the entire Elm app, you know, with no code splitting, which was really surprising.
2: <laughs> how much of that 29 kilobytes, just if you can break it out, would be application code and how much of it would be, you know, framework or architecture code? Do you know, even if you have percentages?
3: Uh, that's so, that's, that's a good question. And uh, it kind of gets into why it's, it's hard to measure. So the reason that Elm, got this to be so small is basically that what 0.19 introduces is function level dead code elimination. So the way that works is uh, so ordinarily you have your application, you install some packages that you depend on. And by default, uh, in the old world, you would just get absolutely everything that you installed with the package, all the code in that package gets compiled into your bundle. So then you have module level dead code elimination, aka tree shaking, um, which is kind of the the, the target in like the JavaScript ecosystem is like, hey, if, if everybody uses ES6 modules, then we can get tree shaking um, and that'll be great. Uh, and so uh, that's sort of one level of dead code elimination where if you don't import a module, then it gets excluded. It gets stripped out of your compiled uh, asset bundle, which is great. cool. Um, but there's one more level than that, which is function level dead code elimination, which is essentially saying, I import this module. This module exposes 100 functions, let's say. If I'm only actually calling three of those functions, that's all I'm gonna get in my compiled output. The other 97 just will get stripped out. Which means that, basically, it doesn't really matter how your modules are organized anymore. It, you can just put your functions wherever makes the most sense organizationally, and it also doesn't matter what you're importing, like which modules you're importing. It only matters which functions you're actually calling. Those are the only ones that get used.
2: That's super cool. So it does all the transitive dependencies and stuff to figure out which functions those functions are calling and so on, so you're not going to be missing a function at the end of the day.
3: Exactly. Now, this is really cool. And it's it's one of the big reasons that um, Elm 0.19 was able to get such a small bundle size is that we, you know, however many dependencies we pull in, it doesn't really matter how big they are. All it matters is how big are the things we actually use. Um, and the reason we're able to do this is that Elm has its own totally separate package ecosystem from NPM. Um, so like we that that whole uh, SPA example doesn't actually use npm at all. It's it's just only using Elm packages, and so as a consequence of that, um, it means you get this system wide dead code elimination, which is you know really great. But it also means that it's kind of hard to measure, like what percentage of you know this is X versus Y versus Z, because it's kind of like, well, what what even is Elm's baseline? Like how much of that? And the answer is, well, it kind of depends on how much of it you're using. So. Mm. <laughs> um you know that that Good dead point. code elimination a- applies to sort of elms standard libraries just as much as any package so it's it makes it pretty tricky to measure um i guess what you could do is you could kind of like do surgery on the compiled js and and kind of like map things back and then like like sort of categorize all of them and say oh this came from here and this came from there but i don't think anybody's ever tried to do that <laughs> it sounds like a bunch of work
2: yeah i was going to say one thing you could do from the other direction and say okay how much application code do i have right how much application code have I are written and assume that you're using all those functions because why would you write app code for a demo that's unused? I guess sure. Um, and then say how big is that if I just if I just you know minify it and or do whatever? I don't, maybe Elm can't yeah. do that. It can't it can't just like boil this part of the world without boiling the entire thing, Uh, especially with its checking and stuff.
3: (laughs) Right, yeah. I don't think there's a way to directly say, like, just compile this application code without its dependencies, because they all... Yeah, because
2: it wouldn't compile.
3: Exactly, right. It depends on those. (laughs) So
2: I'm still thinking, I'm in the minify world. I'm still thinking just minifying all this down, but uh,
3: it's actually
2: compiling. Okay, so...
3: And, And what's really cool about that is that it's a benefit that actually gets bigger the bigger your code base is. Like if you have an example that's like, let's say 10 times the size of this application and you've got a bunch more dependencies because I mean, the the bigger your project is, just naturally the more dependencies you're gonna end up having as a general rule, um, the more you benefit from this because each of those additional dependencies would otherwise represent all that code coming in. But instead it's like, oh no, we're we're just gonna get uh, what we actually use. And the other cool thing is that um, Elm shares transitive dependencies. So if I install two packages that let's say both of them depend on the, I don't know, uh, the, the JSON library, um, it's going to find some version of the JSON library that works with both of those packages and only install that once. So it can do the dead code elimination, not only across your direct dependencies, but also across your indirect dependencies as well with just the one shared version between them. So you really end up with kind of the minimal set of uh, dependencies you can get there's some other cool stuff that it does, um like automatic record renaming, like field renaming. um one kind of cool thing about that is uh it does stuff where basically if you if you've got records which are kind of like JavaScript objects, but simpler, they don't have like prototypes or this or anything like that, and they're immutable. um but basically, you'll say like maybe you'll have a user record that's got fields like username, email, stuff like that. um when you run l make with the optimize flag. Uh, what it'll do is it'll actually compile those down to the smallest JavaScript field names it can come up with. So instead of username and email, it'll compile them down to like A and B, um, which is ordinarily not something that's super safe for a minifier like Uglify to do because you might be potentially relying on those with like dynamic field access using a string right. a variable, um, but in Elm we know that that's not going to happen with these records because that's just not a feature in Elm. You can't do that. You can only access them with a dot. Um, so because of that, it's safe to rename them. And one of the cool things, which granted probably doesn't make a big difference in practice, but which I think is really cool, um, is that it actually goes through your whole program and counts usages like how many times this field is used so that it can use all the single letter ones for the most used fields. And then when you run out of single letters, then it can move into, you know, two oh, letters wow. or something like that, which is just, you know, like how much does that actually save in practice? Okay, yeah. probably doesn't really matter. Um, but it's a it's a cool example of like how much the compiler knows about your whole program.
2: We need to sit Evan down and tell him about the law of diminishing return. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, I honestly think that was one of those things where uh, it was like he had to track it anyway, and so it was kind of like, well, how should I Why distribute not? these things? Yeah, might as well just just count. <laughs> well, that's very cool.
2: Function level dead code elimination—that's the first I've heard of that. You know, the next step is now line level dead code elimination. So lay that challenge out there, yeah. <laughs> line, line by line. you, can, uh, you know do it for speaking next of the next version.
3: Speaking of diminishing returns, I mean there are other potential optimizations out there. Like it it, sure. it could go even further. Um, by like eliminating branches of conditionals that can't possibly get run because of like, you're using this library, but we know that like, it's not possible for that branch to get run. However, uh, that's like another really big project. It's kind of a whole different level of challenge. And at this point it's like, okay, uh, basically Evan put something out there about the design for, um, Code splitting because right now Elm does not have like a first class code splitting mechanism, and and kind of the goal was well let's see how much the dead code elimination does for us and then let's see if a that's something that there's actually demand for and b if there is demand let's see what people's um you know code bases actually look like so that we can kind of design the feature that you know is going to make sense for how their assets end up being in practice because this is kind of a whole new ball game we don't really know what it looks like to you know maybe it turns out that actually if you try to code split along these module boundaries that you end up with actually more than you would have before because you lose out on th- some of the code splitting benefits. So we're gonna have to see how those things look in practice before thinking about, you know, even further uh, investments into asset size.
2: So when you when you say code splitting, you're referring to instead of having a single bundle, you'll have multiple bundles of smaller size that are kind of loaded dynamically. Is that what you mean by code splitting? Yeah, or exactly. Sorry, I, okay. I should
3: probably define my terms. That's <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, so code splitting and lazy loading. Uh, the basic idea is, uh, let's say you've got a single page application. So you've got, you know, you're going to download one HTML file, and then when the user transitions to different URLs, that's actually all going to happen on the client side. You're not actually going to get a page refresh and a, and a flash of white on the screen. Um, all that's going to happen is that the the JavaScript code, uh, the compiled JavaScript code, is going to go and do HTTP requests to the server, saying, "Hey, give me the the data I need to render the next page." And the idea behind code splitting is you're not only going to say, give me the data to render the next page, but also you're going to say, give me the code to run- render the next page. So that mm-hmm. way you don't have to download, let's say you've got, you know, you end up with like 50 pages on your, um, your web app. You don't really want the end user to have to download all of that. When they do the first page load, you'd rather have them download just enough compiled JavaScript to render that first page. And then when they transition to a different page, um, you can then say, "Okay, I'll on the fly load the code for this new page and then execute it." So this is as applications get bigger, this is something that people commonly um, have demand for in the JavaScript world. That may very well turn out to be something that there's also demand for in the Elm world. Um, you know, just because why wouldn't there be? Um, but we yeah. don't really know what the what the design constraints would be yet. I mean, one of the things about performance optimization is that the bottlenecks are always where you least expect them. Um, mm. So now that we have this sort of ecosystem-wide function-level dead code elimination, what does that mean for code splitting? How does it impact it? We don't really know because no one's really ever had it before.
2: <laughs> right. So now that 0.19 is out there and you have this uh, dead code elimination, which sounds like uh, be a straightforward upgrade and then recompile would be, you could, you could at least test. I mean, have you guys tried it? no red ink and just seen your bundle size decrease from version to version, or is it not that simple?
3: Um, it's not that simple. Cause we are still blocked on some of our dependencies, not being updated yet. Um, mm. So we're very much... You don't
2: have the goodness yet.
3: <laughs> Not quite yet. And we're, we're jealous of the companies that, you know, all of their dependencies have already been upgraded. And they're already, you know, <laughs> gushing about it in Elm Slack <laughs> about how awesome you're it like
2: is. A, you're like um, a Android user on like three versions back on their OS.
3: Man. Well, one version back, but, but you know... <laughs> um, no, I mean, we're very excited about it. Uh, like, it's it's something where we actually track, you know, what are our compiled, like, asset sizes for each of our different routes. And so we'll be able to do a pretty cool before and after. I mean, for us, honestly, the, the bigger benefit is the compile time, because now, you know, we got a quarter million lines of Elm code. Um, you multiply, you know, really fast compile time savings, uh across a, a big enough code base that adds up to a lot of increased developer productivity absolutely so, looking forward to that
2: let's go back to the packages real quick so one of the reasons why this is possible this function level dead code elimination like you said is because all of the packages are written in elm on org yep. package manager um and so npm isn't even touched now one of i mean the gift and the curse of npm is there's so much out there yeah right i mean every package and every piece of code in the universe is on npm somehow so <laughs> right. so when we talk about community and, and advantages um how much is elm at a disadvantage in terms of packages that developers need uh versus npm like how i just think of that because of the limiting factor of you're, you're waiting on some packages that haven't been updated yet and i wonder how big is the package ecosystem
3: that's a good question um I don't know the exact number of packages, um, but I know that NPM being the biggest in the world is a lot bigger. <laughs> There's no doubt. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I see it in a couple different ways. So one is Elm does have JavaScript interop. So if worst came to worst, if I were starting a brand new project and I really needed to do you know, some, some, there was some package on NPM that I was like, I can't live without this package. Um, I wouldn't necessarily have to rewrite it in Elm. I could probably just do JavaScript interop and and just get by with that. Um, of course, if I do that, then you know that chunk of code doesn't get me all of Elm's guarantees, uh, all of its benefits. The function level dead code elimination, of course, is not there. Um, right. The only way to get that that I'm aware of in uh, JavaScript is to do it with the uh, Google Closure Compiler. Um, so uh, that is like an Uglify alternative um, that has an advanced mode, which as long as your code abides by certain rules, uh, it can do function level dead code elimination. However, uh, in practice, it seems like there isn't a lot of code base, uh, there aren't a lot of code bases out there that actually happen to abide by those rules such that they can use it. As far as I know, the only community that really makes good use of that is the ClojureScript community, because Script was specifically designed to emit JavaScript that could be used with Closure Compiler on advanced mode. Mm, um, smart. Yeah. So uh, basically, I I think now ClojureScript and now Elm are the only two communities that have the function level dead code elimination. Although I think ClojureScript tends to do more in terms of um, wrapping JavaScript libraries as opposed to sort of uh, rebuilding them from scratch, whereas definitely Elm leans a lot more towards, let's do it in Elm, and then we get all the benefits. So I think in practice, we probably get on a percentage basis, more benefit from it. uh, But I think they're both capable of it.
2: So hypothetically, the JavaScript ecosystem could get there, but it would require, it would be kind of be on an app-by-app app basis. It would require you to abide by specific constraints that a lot of apps aren't doing out there in the wild.
3: Yeah. And I think a lot of this comes down to ergonomics. Um, I have kind of a, a whole series of thoughts I've been kind of fleshing out about um, just comparing how JavaScript has evolved over the past, I don't know, 10 years um, since 2008, when the it got fast enough to build web apps in because of the, mm-hmm. the great browser performance wars, and I think in a lot of ways, uh, a lot of the churn people have been seeing and complaining about, with like, oh my gosh, there's there's so much stuff coming out all the time, and things are changing so fast, really dates back to that 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 performance war that that led to JavaScript being really suitable to have uh, rich web apps that were they're really client side heavy
0: this episode is brought to you by Linode our cloud server of choice it's so easy to get started head to linode.com slash changelog pick a plan pick a distro and pick a location and administer deploy your Linode cloud server they have drill-worthy hardware, native SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, 99.9% uptime guaranteed. We are never down. 24 seven customer support, 10 data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they got you covered. Head to leno.com changelog to get $20 in hosting credit. That's four months free. Once again, Lino.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Raygun, who just launched their APM service. It was built with the developer and DevOps in mind. They're leading with first-class support for .NET apps, also available as an Azure app service, and have plans to support .NET Core, followed by Java, and Ruby in the near future. After doing a ton of competitive research between the current APM providers, where Raygun APM excels is the level of detail they're surfacing. New Relic and AppDynamics, for example, are more business-oriented, where Raygun has been built for developers and DevOps. The level of detail provided in the traces are amazing. The flame charts are awesome and allows you to actively solve problems and dramatically boost your team's efficiency when diagnosing problems. Deep dive into root cause with automatic links back to source for an unbeatable issue resolution workflow. Learn more and get started at raygun.com APM. Once again, raygun.com APM.
2: One question I asked, I do remember asking two years ago, and you were teasing that. I wonder the state of it because I haven't heard. Was Elm on the server? Did anything ever come of that, or is it still just a, a. a, a spark or what's the word a pipe dream a sparkle in your eye like what's the situation is that gonna happen that's, or that's did it happen?
3: no that's a great question um it's not that it did happen it's more that i think we have a much better understanding of what that looks like now um and basically so so we're as was the case two years ago and is still the case now um elm does not have first class server side support and that's intentional uh we basically want to focus on the browser for now um but we're sort of keeping an eye on the server so one of the perhaps surprising things um that has been kind of guiding this design question of what should elm on the server look like if anything um is actually WebAssembly. so one of the things we've been uh Sort of surprised by was um, when WebAssembly came out and and discovering that actually this was a thing that all the browser vendors were on board with and were actually supporting. Um, there became this question at some point of what does WebAssembly mean for Elm? And that kind of transitioned to discussions with some folks at Mozilla and you know asking about what's the garbage collection story going to be like, um, and asking questions about what should Elm's interop uh, look like. And where we ended up was kind of discovering that actually it seems pretty feasible that elm could someday compile just to WebAssembly, not to javascript at all and actually that all of the existing javascript interop would still work Mm. and the reason that's possible is that the way that elm's javascript interop works is essentially through message passing it's kind of like a a pub sub like maybe event emitter system so you kind of your elm app sort of broadcasts events out to JavaScript and then listens for events coming in from JavaScript. And since that's the whole model, it's like that. And then also you can use some web component stuff if it's uh, just view specific, Um, neither here nor there. But either one of those interop methods works totally fine if Elm is compiling to WebAssembly instead of to JavaScript. It can still talk to JavaScript just as easily as it did before. And nobody on the other side needs to know or care that it's compiling to WebAssembly under the hood which could be even bigger for assets and also um, even bigger for performance, not just because it gets to have lower overhead, but also because it opens the door to really exciting concurrency stuff. So right now, um, Elm is actually very much intentionally designed to be a language that's potentially great at concurrency, but a lot of that potential is sort of uh, goes to waste because JavaScript is single-threaded and web workers are Let's say not usually great for improving performance of typical web applications in practice, even though in theory they might be able to because of serialization overhead. Um, but a lot of that could potentially change if Elm compiled to WebAssembly. Now, if mm-hmm. Elm compiles to WebAssembly, uh, that kind of opens the door to Elm on the server having sort of a a, a built-in way to sort of get off the ground in a way where, um, or sorry, in an environment where. Concurrency actually matters a lot more, and you can have a lot more potential benefits from it. Because on the client side, concurrency is basically a you know a performance optimization, um, but on the server, it can be a pretty fundamental thing as far as throughput, as far as um, sure. how much the server can handle. You know what kind of a load it's actually capable of processing. Um, so the potential seems to be pretty high there, and I don't know if that actually ends up the way that we end up going with it. Um, but it's, it's been pretty fascinating to, to sort of realize, oh, hey, this actually seems like not only a plausible path, but actually a, a likely path at this point. And we've actually started basically making design considerations. Like anytime we talk about any kind of uh, change that might impact the language or the, the core libraries, one of the questions that always comes up is, will this still be fine if we're compiling to WebAssembly instead? And it's basically become so, something of a design constraint.
1: Hmm.
2: So let me... Make sure I'm understanding you correctly. Are you saying that the work to make Elm compile to WebAssembly uh, is the kind of work that you would have to do to run it on the server and so the re-architecting will help you? Or are you saying that you could actually, once you compile to WebAssembly, then you just magically be able to run that compiled you know, WASM thing on the server?
3: Yeah, so um, I guess I, I kind of skipped a step. Um, so, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, that was a total leap. That's um, all right. So, so basically, uh, Evan wrote out, like, one of the FAQs, you know, is, uh, hey, does does Elm run on the server? And, yeah. of course, I mean, Elm compiles to JavaScript. So literally, if you wanted to, you could sure. compile Elm to JavaScript and run that Doesn't mean that you should, right? <laughs> <know>. <laughs> yeah. Well, more importantly, it doesn't mean you're going to have a good time if you do that. Uh, all
2: right, which means you shouldn't do it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, so so one of the uh, the big things that Evan points out is that basically, you know, compiling to a particular target is about five percent of the work of of getting to a good experience. Um, the mm. ecosystem is is a huge deal, and so you have all of this enormous amounts of design work and also implementation work to say what would a good Elm experience on the server be like. Like Elm has different design constraints than. I don't think there's any other language that has all exactly the same design constraints that Elm has. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely design work to do to figure out what would a nice experience look like. And uh, actually, so uh, ReasonML just ran into this kind of recently where, um, so Reason ML is a, another uh, programming language that compiles to JavaScript. Um, although technically it's a syntax on top of OCaml. So it doesn't have to compile to JavaScript, although that's kind of... Uh, what its it's big pitch is because the syntax looks very JavaScripty. Anyway, um, a lot of people were saying, well, uh, if I can compile ReasonML to JavaScript, and I can also run OCaml on my server, um, why not use ReasonML on the server? And what uh, quickly turned, turned out to be the case is that unfortunately, that's not enough to get a good experience right out the box. There's still a huge amount of work to do to basically build an ecosystem around that to answer questions like, what should a web server look like? What should database access look like? There's all these different things, you know, working with queues, working with third-party APIs. Um, all of these questions that sort of have to be addressed before you have, you know, something that's uh, an adequate um, replacement from an ergonomics perspective for something like Rails or Sinatra or Express or um, any of the other alternatives that people commonly use. Um, so what the the folks who ended up doing that in the early days were basically doing on, on reason is they ended up saying, well, OK, we're going to write our business logic in reason. And then we're actually just going to end up compiling it to JavaScript and then doing a lot of interop to Express just to end up basically using Express uh as our as our application server um, so you know I guess technically you could do the same thing in Elm if you wanted to just use Elm for your business logic and then use a whole ton of interop to talk to you know <laughs> express um, but that's not really the sort of the elm experience that people are accustomed to people are, are accustomed yeah. to things sort of just working and being reliable and um, really only having to use interop in, in very exceptional cases not as like a you know bread and butter type thing so I think um that's that's kind of where the 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 big amount of work to do exists is like, what's the design of a really nice system. And that's uh, what, what brings me back to WebAssembly is, what are the design constraints of that system? And if, one of the design constraints is we're running in this single-threaded, albeit asynchronous environment, like because we're compiling to JS and running it on Node, that really constrains the API design space compared to if we're saying, yeah, we just have complete control over concurrency, we have first-class you know, threads that we can work with under the hood, um, we can offer a nicer API uh, at a foundational level on which that whole ecosystem can be built if we're compiling to something that has a really nice notion of uh, of threading. And this also mm-hmm. gets into other questions, like one of the things that that Evan discovered in his, his research um, is that, uh, so Evan's a big uh, admirer of Erlang's um, supervision tree model and, and sort of the way that they handle fault tolerance and the way that they do mm-hmm. servers, um, which has a lot of really great benefits. Um, and one of the things that kind of came out of this uh, exploration is that it seems like that those ideas um, are absolutely at their most effective when they are part of the foundational primitives, as opposed to uh, when you try to opt into them using a a third-party package, which happens in a lot of languages. Um, So that's also sort of necessarily part of that initial design. And the way that Erlang is able to to get really, really high throughput and really great fault tolerance is because it has really great concurrency primitives and also supervision built in from day one. So um, philosophically, I think Uh, The the phrase Evan used was, you know, I I built Elm because I wanted to make something that had a credible claim of being the the best experience you could get for building front-end applications. And for me as a user of that, I absolutely think he succeeded. Um, But he basically said, look, if if I'm going to do all the work to to bring it to the server, I would want that same goalpost. I wouldn't want to just say it's like Elm, but also on the server, but rather saying, right. Even if you don't use Elm on the front end, this has a, a legitimate claim to being, you know, potentially, if, if you're into the types of things that that Elm does, um, this would be the best choice that you would possibly have out there for servers. And that's a much higher bar to clear and requires I'm a lot say, more I would say, that's a
2: bar. longer field goal to kick, yeah. Well, especially
3: because sure. in the front end, it's basically like, you know, who's your competition? It's like exactly. JavaScript and TypeScript and then like, uh, you know, several niche alternatives. On the back end, it's like Python, Ruby, Go scala java i mean the list just goes on and on there's there's so many different alternatives that have been around for longer than in some cases longer than javascripts even existed um yeah and uh and and a lot of them you know have have a lot more sort of uh claims to fame like like certainly erlang in terms of robustness or you know uh, java in terms of like sheer scale of, of some of those deployments um you know that that elm really uh it has a long way to go before I can kind of say, yeah, you know, we're, we're a serious contender in that space.
2: So you're on the front line of Elm community and adoption. You go to the meetups, the conference talks, all this. Surely you hear a lot of people that are trying Elm or have tried to switch or adopt. And they go back to JavaScript for one reason or the other. I always think of myself with Sublime Text and VS Code. You know, every month or two, I try out VS Code and there's always just like one or two blockers. Uh I'm just like, yeah, I'm going back to sublime text. And so I just, I don't do that. So surely you've heard some of those people where they say, yeah, this just isn't the way I like it, or that's not up to snuff, or I just can't get over this, that, or the other thing. What are some things people have been saying of why they don't adopt them?
3: That's a great question. Um, So I can, man, I, I, I mean, you're right. I, I am very plugged into that and I can like rattle off a list. Um, So I, I would say they break down into a couple of different categories. Um a common one is team buy-in. So there'll be one person on the team who's really excited about Elm and everybody else on the team is just kind of like we don't really care, we don't want to learn a new language and it the, the idea just kind of dies on the vine. Um mm-hmm. that's sad when it happens, but at the same time it's like, you know, teams got to work together. So, you know, I don't I don't think there's really much hope for success of adopting something if, you know, any technology if only one out of n people um <laughs> actually wants to use it. Right. Um <laughs> So that's certainly a barrier. Um, Another one that comes to mind is uh, basically um, learning curve. So Elm is a different programming language. That's just an innately higher learning curve than learning a library, learning a framework. Um, I kind of think that's the progression. Like library tends to have the lowest learning curve. Framework is more than that. Language is Mm -hmm. more than that. Um, Especially because sometimes when you get into languages, um, people end up with roadblocks that uh, are, are not necessarily matters of it's it's too difficult to learn, but rather that uh, people are just uh, not interested in learning because there's like some aesthetic turnoff. So Elm does have a different syntax than JavaScript. Quite a lot of people say they like the syntax better, but there are some people who say, actually, I don't like the syntax as much and this just bothers me too much. I can't get through the tutorial. Um, so that happens. That's another reason that, that people don't end up using Elm. Um, from a perspective of uh, actual like APIs and libraries. I think the number one thing that, that people, uh, say, I don't know how many people, uh, walk away from Elm because of it, but I have heard at least one person say that they were, they did sort of like a hack day project, um, where they, they, they decided they were going to switch front end technologies and they tried Elm and they tried Vue.js and they tried React and they tried, uh, I forget what the other one was. Um, but they ended up not going with Elm because of this, which is um, JSON decoders. And so basically, in order for Elm to have at the level of reliability that it does, um, it needs to not only say, like when you get some you know, some data from the server, it needs to not only say, uh, I've got this data and now I can work with it, it actually needs to sort of like validate and translate it into you know, a format that makes sense for Elm. So if you think about it, in the JavaScript world, if I've got a JavaScript object, uh, and I try to access a field on it, and it's not there, I get back undefined, and that might very well lead to a runtime exception. You know, the good old-fashioned, undefined is not a function, that type I'm of right. thing. Um, but in Elm, we don't really have that. That's all sort of uh, checked by the compiler. Now, when you get back data from the server in JavaScript, you can sort of parse that, you know, call json.parse, and it'll just give you back a JavaScript object immediately, or it'll throw an exception, which you can wrap a try-catch around, and um, But assuming it parses, then you've got an object and now you're playing by the same rules as normal, which is to say, eh, not much in the way of rules. And TypeScript basically does this the same way. It just sort of says like, trust me. And you say, okay, I'm going to give up type checking right at the border. I'm not going to have the compilers help. I'm just going to assume that this JSON sort of fit the shape that I expected and we'll just kind of go from there. Um, Whereas Elm is sort of more serious about trying to maintain those guarantees as your program runs. And because the compiler can't possibly check what's coming out of your server because it's just a blob of data. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't exist at compile time. Um, There's nothing to check. Uh, Instead, it basically has this library called uh, for JSON decoding that will simultaneously parse the JavaScript, but also sort of validate it against a schema um, and say, if that schema doesn't match what, you know, what we expected, then it will fail. And, you know, you can, you can do error handling, but you kind of have to specify the error handling up front. Um, So it ends up, resulting in a more reliable system. But it does mean that you actually have to write out a schema for all of your JSON endpoints. Um, whereas in JavaScript, you just don't. You just say json.parse right. and it's just like, okay, uh, good luck. Um, Elm's not really into the whole, like, let's just pretend problems won't happen. It's like, no, we're going to try and actually handle the problems and and you know, do our best to make sure that if there is a bug, we know exactly where it happened, and we can gracefully recover from it.
2: So this annoys some people because they're used to not having to do that. And now this is feels cumbersome or.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And and, I mean, people say it's a bunch of boilerplate, right? It's, it's it's stuff that I don't have to do in JavaScript and I do have to do in Elm. Um, So uh, one, so we're kind of like working on this and in, in typical um, like sort of Elm design sensibilities, uh, the goal is not so much to say, well, how can we make this uh, less verbose? Uh, The goal is actually to say, well, what's the, Best way to do this? Like, what's 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 the end goal here? Like, can can we find a system where not only does it improve that, but actually, um, it we, we find something that solves other problems, which actually along the way solves that. And uh, that's actually been something I've been doing a lot of research into recently. Um, and the the short answer turns out to be that the people who have the best experience with doing client-server data interaction in Elm tend to have a single source of truth uh, for like the schema. Uh, so an example of this would be like at Google, they use protocol buffers for everything. And without going into too much detail, the, the the relevant part here is that they have one schema file that says, here's what my data on the wire is gonna look like. And then they have a tool that they run that generates both the client side code that's gonna decode that, and then also the server side code that's gonna encode that. And vice versa, if you're, if you're sending data from client to server. So by having this single source of truth between the client and the server in this schema file, and then using code generation at build time to make sure that the two sides agree, you can actually sort of make sure that um, you no longer have the problem of, oh, whoops, I changed what my server's sending, but I forgot to update my client side code to receive it. Um, If you change the one, but not the other, something in your build's gonna break. So that has like a separate, really nice benefit even beyond the, you know, hey, it's, it's a lot of boilerplate that I don't want to have to deal with. Um, but as a nice consequence of that, it also addresses that because now instead of having to define it in multiple places, you only define it in one place. You just say like, here's my schema file and then it's going to generate my code on the server. It's going to generate my code on the client. And so rather than having to sort of like write out, oh, here's the shape of my stuff on the client and then also here's the separate decoder, you can just generate both of those at the same time for free from this one schema file um, and while you're at it also get better reliability because your build will break if the client and server get out of sync Um, so we've got something like this it's not literally protocol buffers um, but on on one internal service and so far the people who've been working on that system are like yeah this is great this is like everything's better Um, and so that seems likely to be the sort of like the the shape of uh, of a solution to that particular um, thing that 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 some people like turns some people off from the language, um, where it's sort of like a, a solution in to the direct uh, pain point, while also making something else even nicer.
2: So tell folks who are interested in learning Elm, maybe they're JavaScript developers and they want to check it out. What's the happiest path to learning Elm?
3: Yeah, so um, I mean, the first resource I recommend to everybody is just the official guide. So if you go to elm-lang.org, uh, elm like the tree, um, then it's it's got a, a a nice walkthrough that just sort of gets you a start to finish. Um, but it's it's pretty short, so that's uh, you know kind of a pro and a con. It's, it'll get you up and running, but it's not super in depth. Um, so I'm writing a book, <laughs> shameless plug, Elm in Action, uh, which goes into a lot more depth, um, and it's it's pretty much designed at people who No JavaScript, uh, at least to some extent. It doesn't expect that you're a JavaScript master by any stretch, uh, but it uses JavaScript as sort of a comparison point. So I think if you're coming from JavaScript, that should be a a nice introduction. Um, If you prefer the video thing, I've also got a course on front-end masters, which I recently updated for Elm 19. And uh, I've got two courses on there. One is Intro to Elm, which is basically a day-long course. Just gets you zero knowledge of elm at the beginning all the way up through building an application and kind of working on a a larger elm code base that does single page application stuff and uh, http and all that um and then the advanced course uh, is for you know uh, maybe come back in a couple of months if you've been digging the elm thing and and get into some of the, the really cool advanced stuff
2: very good thanks richard
1: this has been a lot of fun thanks for coming on the show
3: all right thanks
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Changelog. Assuming you're loving this show, rate, review, or recommend it wherever you listen from. It helps us reach new, awesome people. If this is your first time listening to The Changelog, you can find more episodes and our other compelling shows at changelog.com podcasts. The edit and mix was done by me, Tim Smith, and the music, as always, is brought to you by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks to our sponsors, Hired, Rollbar, Linode, and Raygun. Bandwidth is provided by FastLog. Learn more about them at fastly.com. We move fast and fix things. Here's a changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com/changelog. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.